Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. And yes, that's right. We're back to being Experimental Homebrewing. We hope that you didn't mind last episode. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we pick the brains of 24 of the world's best brewers just to get them their tips, tricks, and secrets right into your hands. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, we're back to the usual. We're going to hit your feedback. We're going to go to the pub to talk some beer news, because boys, it's been a busy time since we last talked. In the library, we're going to hit some lambicky miss, and we've got a couple things to talk about in the brewery before we get to the lounge and start in on, on our whole New Zealand content. And from there, we got a quick tip, some questions, and something other to get you on to your beery week. Man, I'm exhausted. You're always exhausted. But, you know, I, I got the solution for that. Let's go to the pub. Hey, that's a great idea. We're going to head on over to the pub, uh, stick around, and listen to a few messages from our sponsors, and we'll meet you there. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, organizers of Big Brew for National Homebrew Day, probably the most important holiday of the year. This May 5th, the AHA invites you to gather with your homebrewing friends, fire up the kettle, and celebrate the hobby we all love. To find a Big Brew event near you, or to promote your own celebration, visit the AHA website at homebrewersassociation.org and select events. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, we're back, and we're not in the pub yet. We got a little biz to take care of before we head over there. So first, we want to remind you that there is a new episode of The Brew Files out, and it's Drew talking to Andreas about German beer again. And man, what a fascinating dude. Oh, yeah. I, I really dug that episode. I spent a lot of time uh, listening through it and also reading his book. So by all means, go go and, uh, go listen to that episode if you haven't yet. That's episode 33 of The Brew Files, uh, Bavarian versus Northern German beers. And hey, also on other topics of things that we've done, if you didn't see it the other week on our YouTube channel, I did another one of my Saison tastings, including a very special beer. Uh, yeah, man, you uh, you not only made a Saison with some new yeast to test out, but you tested out those uh, American Noble Hops from YCH. And I'm looking forward to getting into them myself. Yeah. I have to admit, I told the guys at YCH, I am way more excited about those Noble Hops, I think, than the Cryo Hops, because I think they're just a new flavor potential. You know, um, they're worked into my uh, American Mild recipe, and I hope to get that brewed uh, early next week, once I get this podcast done. I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, me too, man. (laughs) Well, don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website. 
and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is Habitat for Humanity, helping people build their own homes everywhere in your town, in my town, in all of our towns. Great, great organization. Uh, give them a hand while they give other people a hand. Go to our website, click on the Patreon link, and donate whatever amount you feel like, and we'll pass it along to Habitat for Humanity. All right. And now, it's time for feedback. Our first piece of feedback comes from Dave Rafino, and a couple of people wrote this sort of stuff, and it was on this last episode that we had, you know, the Everything Crafted show. And yes, some people figured out that it was a little bit of our early April Fool's episode, but mostly it was also because Denny was going to be away in New Zealand and we needed to have an episode ready. So Dave Rafino writes, uh, great job, guys. I was confused at first by the format change, and then remembered April 1st was a few days away. I was sure it was an April Fool's uh, when you did the water story. What, you don't want to make water out of a paint shaker? <laughs> uh, but the rest of the show was pretty uh, spot-on serious with some good content. Not so sure anymore. I am relieved that it was a prank. However, would an occasional extended something other than beer segment where you could talk cooking, cocktails, or gardening in some depth. So keep up the great work. You know, and we might just do that. I know a lot of people were a little confused by that episode, but we liked it. <laughs> it. It was interesting to do, and the whole time I was thinking, oh man, are they going to kill us? Well, we're here. They haven't killed us yet. We're, that's right. right. Second piece of feedback comes from Michael Brown, and we got another couple of pieces of feedback along this line. So, Denny, this one's for you. Uh, firstly, great work, and thank you both for doing this podcast. It's one of my favorite podcasts, and I look forward to it every week. That said, my feedback is about Denny being a stick in the mud, about fun and experimental brewing things like the recent glitter beer or other trends in beers like New England IPA. Denny, aren't you the one to say, if you're not having fun, then you're not doing something wrong? I would argue that the glitter thing, the changes in brewing as seen in the New England IPA styles, and all sorts of playful things in and around brewing are for the fun of it. I appreciate tradition, but I also appreciate people doing things that make beer fun, light, and an ever-changing beverage. Why so curmudgeon Denny? Sincerely, Michael. And P.S., the new music on the latest podcast is so excellent. So, Okay, Michael, your punishment is that I'm going to keep using that music when I edit this one. You know, I, I've been thinking a lot about how to respond to this. And first of all, I, I just got to get it out there and say, I am really sick of people saying that I'm a curmudgeon or a stick in the mud or an old man because I have my personal preferences and express them. Uh, if you like those beers and you think they're fun, then go ahead and drink them. Uh, I'm not judging you for drinking them or not drinking them, and I would appreciate it if you didn't judge me for my own preferences. Beer is supposed to be about enjoyment Drink what you enjoy. I'll do the same. I'll express my opinions. You express your opinions. But stop judging people because of the opinions, right? Okay, that's it. I've said enough. And you all wonder why people think you're cranky. Well, I'm not, though, man. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I get cranky when people call me cranky. <laughs> you know what? I think I know what you need. What's that? You need a beer. Okay. Let's go to the pub. Let's go to the pub. We'll be right back. Stick around. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. 
With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. We have made our way over to the pub. We're having a couple beers. What are you drinking today, Drew? Well, I'm drinking that beer that I mentioned that was very special about the YouTube broadcast. I'm drinking a nice, healthy glass of my Laurel Canyon Saison, which is just a little bit of a darker take on my normal experimental Saison. But this time, I put dry hops of those debittered leaf, or what they're now calling American Noble Laurel hops, uh, into the primary while it was fermenting, because it was a split batch, and I didn't want to forget about it. And... Man, this was one of those beers that when I transferred it out of the fermenter the other uh, day, when I did my crazy brewing day, which we'll also talk about later, I took a taste of the beer that was being transferred, like, you know, the, the little bit of that first running piece. And I just had that moment reaction of like, oh, my God, this is so perfect. It was, wow. it was one, of the, one of those just, you know, the lights shining down from heaven and illuminating your glass and your, your brain type experiences. So I'm going to ha- really enjoy this beer. I'm also going to be really sad when I run out of this beer. <laughs> I love those moments though. When that happens, man, you know, it, it, every once in a while when you're, when you're brewing, you get one of those and you kind of feel like uh, this is what justifies all the misses. Yeah, exactly. So now what are you <laughs> drinking, buddy? I am having a glass of my rye IPA, the classic recipe, except that it's made with 100% Mecca grade estate malts. And I cannot tell you how they bump up the flavor in this beer, man. It is just stunning. The Lamanta as a base malt has a really nice, rich flavor to it. The rye has some just incredible spice to it. and, And the rye flavor, it's probably one of the most flavorful rye malts I've ever used, if not the best. So at any rate, uh, I, I am enjoying this greatly, and I'm glad that I've just tapped the keg because it means I got a while to go before I have to worry about running out. Always the best feeling. <laughs> yes, indeed. Okay, I think it's time for us to dig into some beer news because, boy, was it busy. And yeah, I don't think it was any busier than the bad, bad week that Green Flash had the as we're recording this. Like, I mean... Wow. Yeah, it was it was kind of a shock out of the blue to uh, hear that they had been foreclosed on, the equipment had been sold, their uh, asset Alpine Brewing had been sold off. Um, you know, Green Flash has been around and a staple, not a huge brewery, but a, a, a staple brewery for quite a while. Uh, but, man, it, it's just, I think, one more in the cases of people who expanded too much and then the market kind of leveled out. Yeah, well, to, to recap it, basically what ended up happening is in the course of one week, Green Flash put their Virginia Beach East Coast Brewery up for auction. All right, goodbye, so long, shut down that operation. And then within one week of that event happening, they closed Cellar 3, which was their barrel-age facility. It was a separate you know, facility and a separate tasting room. And then... 
hot on the heels of that, they announced, oh yeah, their primary uh, debtor, you know, uh, Comercia Bank, foreclosed on them because it turns out they hadn't been able to service the debt since the middle of last year or something, which is kind of insane. And then they got picked up by a San Diego private equity firm. And so now that San Diego private equity firm owns Alpine and owns Green Flash, but the folks behind Alpine, the McKinleys, have been kicked out of the company. They're no longer part of Green Flash, or the, or, sorry, it's now West Coast IPA uh, LLC. So they're no longer part of that company, and only their son remains as one of the brewers under contract. So, I mean, yikes. And, oh, and by the way, this also means that we also don't know what the fate is of the Nebraska property, because they were opening up a brewery slash brew pub in the old Plowshare Brewing uh, Company that was owned by my friend Matt Stenchfield in Lincoln. So... I mean, in the course of one week, they went from being sort of a wide-ranging firm. And remember, earlier this year, they had also pulled back distribution. But they went from being a wide-ranging firm to now suddenly they're down into sort of a get lean, get mean, and reestablish profitability mode. Well, and let's face it, they're a business. Profitability is why they're there, you know? Uh, It's nice to think of it in, in the rosy terms of, oh, my goodness, beer is such a wonderful thing. How could anybody want us to make money? But, you know, that's that's what it's all about. Oh, and it's a it's a real shame, man. I've always been a real fan of Green Flash and Alpine. Both made great stuff. But they they both also fell prey to, to the same thing that's taken down a lot of other breweries. Yep. Well, and there were clearly missteps along the way. You know, a lot of people will point to a reformulation of the West Coast IPA, which is, I think, telling because of the, the new company name. But... I mean, still, to me, I think the most stunning part about it was just the rapidity. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, it seemed like, oh, look, we're making moves to address our profitability. Next thing you know, before you can even blink an eye, gone. Well, but if they hadn't serviced their debt in six months, then they really weren't, were they? Yep, I agree. So, yeah. all right, from there, why don't we go on to a sort of a happier brewery story and our friends yeah. over at Summit Brewing Company. They got, uh, they're getting a lot of praise because their social media game seems to be pretty well on point uh, right now. Uh, you know, one of the things that irritates brewers more than anything else is going and looking at reviews on Untapped or on Beer Advocate or Rate Beer or wherever. And just like restaurateurs get you know annoyed at reviews on Yelp and just seeing like a lot of, you know, oh, I don't like bitterness on their IPA. And so they're ranking down the IPA. And some of has just had a whole series of tweets where they're effectively calling people out. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool, man. Uh, basically, a bunch of people who really didn't know what they were talking about uh, tweeted about Summit's beer. And Summit, in a very cool, non-snarky way, really, uh, kind of kind of like uh, responded. It was here's an example. One tweet is from last night. Everything an IPA should be, but nothing special, a bit on the bitter side. To which Summit responded, Next up from Summit Brewing, a glitter IPA that files your taxes. I'll take that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, really. I mean, it's like saying, you know, I, I just don't care for this stout because it's dark. Right. You know? Well, but I mean, let's face it, those responses are snarky. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, you know, they are, but they're not, it's, it's not too bad. You know, they're not like actually calling the guys. I like this one particularly. Somebody said, drinking after a sour, I know, my bad, but it tastes muted because of that. To which Summit responded, 
stands too close to the speakers at a Coldplay show, can't hear normal speaking voices for 16 to 48 hours, according to Healthline.com. <laughs> P.S. To cleanse your palate between different beer styles, try water, pretzels, crackers, etc. So, see, it's like, you know, th- there's a little bit of snark there, but there's like an actual helpful well, message well, trying to it's, get through. It's snark minus the, the, the overt personal attack. <laughs> Yeah, right, exactly. I guess that's it, you know? Uh, but uh, it, it's great. I, I love the responses. And, uh, you know, hopefully people it will make people aware that uh, sometimes it's you, not the beer. Yeah. And then, and of course, I think their whole message is summed up by the idea that, you know, they're like, I just because I don't like the beer doesn't mean it's a bad beer. Yes, and so please remember that when I talk about glitter beer or Northeast IPA, I'm expressing my opinion. And speaking of those things, the Brewers Association also released the new guidelines for the JABF this year, and they have a couple of new uh, new styles in there. And the new styles this year, they include some uh, you know really kind of sensible splits. But remember, the BA guidelines are all about trying to maximize the sort of what's actually being brewed out there in the world. And allowing people to get their beers in to you know, be in metal contention. And so this year they've introduced goes and co- contemporary goes. So basically, you know, hey, you know, tweak this to make it a little bit more fair in terms of splitting that out. Uh, they've also included a classic Australian style pale ale and Australian style pale ale. And that's basically to show that there's a, a large difference between what's been classically done versus what's being done nowadays by a lot of uh, Australian craft brewers. And I know that will make uh, Peter happy. And then there's a contemporary American-style Pilsner, which is essentially for your your craft lagers with a higher hopping rate and high hoppery aroma, as opposed to, say, either modern American lager or pre-prohibition lager. And then... And I, I, got, I got to admit, man, I'm a huge fan of those contemporary American-style Pilsners. I can be, but, man, sometimes I think the some people go a little overboard with the dry hopping and they get this really herbal thing that I don't think works as well. So... Yeah, it depends. It depends on the dry hops you're using too. But yeah, uh, in theory, I think it's a great beer. And then, lastly, but not least, and of course, Denny's favorite subject so far this episode, the juicy or hazy styles. They've introduced a juicy or hazy pale ale, juicy or hazy IPA, and a juicy or hazy double IPA, just so that Denny knows where not to go. Well, you know, I, I think that that's actually a great thing if they're going to be in competitions and they're popular and there so that means that they will be in competition then you got to have some way to define them so you can judge them so cool good on them um i'm i'm really curious to see if they actually define what they mean by juicy indeed all right well and then finally now that we've gotten the styles out of the way and the bad brewery business of course we also have to go look at some of the other april fools things that happened while we were gone and while we were doing our own thing and I think there were two that were really great out there. The first one was an article in the New School Beer. Danny, you want to talk about it? Yeah, this is uh, by my friend Aaron Broussat. Uh Aaron uh, is not only a great writer and a great uh, lover of beer, but he also has a great sense of humor. So uh, he wrote about a new law here in Oregon that actually limits the amount of hops that can be used uh, because, uh, you know, if you get the hop levels too high, they fall into the medicinal levels, and that can be a, a real issue. So hops added to the wort within 15 minutes of the end of the boil shall not exceed two pounds of leaf hops or the equivalent measure of pellet or processed hop product per barrel. 
hops added to the wort after applied heat before wort reaches 185 degrees Fahrenheit shall not exceed one pound of leaf hops or the equivalent measure of pellet or processed hop product per barrel. And finally, hops added to the wort at any temperature below 185 degrees Fahrenheit shall not exceed one half pound of leaf hops or the equivalent measure of pellet or processed hop product per barrel and shall not contact wort or beer for more than three days. <laughs> yeah, right. Mm. Thanks, Aaron. And uh, Aaron does quote uh, Breakside head brewer Ben Edmonds in here, uh, which may or may not have actually happened. Uh, but it it's a fun article. We'll put a link up to it. Give it a read. And remember, it was April Fool's. Uh, and then finally, also from Igor Eric Pierce, who's hard at work on a lot of different things. He posted a really great uh, YouTube video uh, talking about feeding hops and grain to his chickens and getting special eggs out of the other side. Uh, we'll include a link to it. We'll include a link to it if you haven't seen it, but the video itself is really hysterical. Yeah, it is. And we're not going to tell you any more about it because you need to watch it for yourself. So uh, after you get done watching Drew's Cezanne and American Noble uh, video, check out Eric's video because it's wild. I love it. Yep. All right, let's finish these. Let's keep going. Okay. We're going to down these beers, we're going to get out of here, and we're going to head on over to the library to talk a little bit about some myths about Lambics. So stick around, and we'll bust those in a minute. YCH Hops is a grower-owned global hop company located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms with the world's finest brewers. YCH Hops is thrilled about the release of their newest product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Visit YCHHops.com to find a homebrew retail store near you. Sitting here in the library, it smells old, musty, and leathery, but that's okay because there's a lot of books here. The article we're going to be talking about today comes from a great website called Lost Beers, written by a guy named Roll Mulder. And Roll, I hope I pronounced your name right. If I'm pretty sure I didn't, so let us know and we'll correct it. But uh, this particular article is Eight Myths About Lambic Debunked, and you guys know how. Uh, we love debunking myths. So we're going to just kind of like mention a couple of them and you can go read the rest of it for yourself. Yeah, this is a real short read, but I think it's actually really kind of nice, particularly if you'd like to dig into, you know, sort of beer myth versus beer history. And to me, I think one of the big ones is I know that Cantillon's Iris is always sort of, you know, well lauded for being one of the few sort of hoppy, hoppy lambics out there because it's dry hopped. But the myth number eight in this list was that lambic brewers traditionally used aged hops. Yeah, and I always heard that, right? Oh, you got to go get those aged hops if you want to be able to to make a good lambic. And Roll walks through and actually talks about the fact that lambic was hoppy back in the day, and that you can actually even see in some of the brewing logs where they're using, you know, fairly fresh hops for the time. 
And so it's kind of nifty to think it makes you want to kind of stop and go, huh, can I make a Lambic IPA? <laughs> wow. Why not, man? If you can put glitter in beer, you can make a Lambic IPA. And, and for you, Denny? Well, for me, one of the ones that I thought was great, because I heard this from the moment that I started brewing, was that a true Lambic could only be made within two miles of a particular place around Brussels or along the Zen from Hall to Vilvoord or something that I can't pronounce. But uh, Roll cites evidence that he found in his research that uh, Lambics were being made as far away as in Holland. Uh, it never became as big as in Brussels, but they still continued to make uh, Lambic in, in Holland until the 1930s. So, you know, it's like there's another one and, you know, these myths just happen and they kind of get passed on uh, from one source to another. So it, it's great to have somebody actually go out there and do some research and find out what the truth is. Yeah, so we'll include a link to that article so you can dig into the other six myths and, and read everything else that we didn't uh, cover in this one. Onward and upward to the brewery. That's right, man. We're going to head over to the brewery and we're going to talk about uh, another fascinating article about yeast that we ran across. And we're going to talk about Drew's stupid beer day. And why am I surprised? Because you like stupid. <laughs> because it's no less than I would expect from you. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be in the brewery. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaka you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. kettles are gleaming the fermenters are shining somewhere in the background an airlock is going clink 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 that's right we're in the brewery and it's time to talk beer denny why don't you kick us off well this first article i thought was very very interesting it's about a uh, discovery that yeast can be genetically modified to create some of the flavors and aromas of hops in the beer um and you know People are saying, oh, this is going to be the end of hops, or oh my God, what a terrible thing, GMO and beer. And I don't see either one of those as necessarily being the case. Do you? No, I think this is just, I mean, if this does turn into something practical, I think this will just be another tool in the brewer's war chest. But I'm not sure it can be turned into something practical, at least in my mind. This has been reported by a lot of outlets, I mean, it was even picked up by NPR. And, and reported, and, and the studies authors were talking about, oh, you know, this is a great way to alleviate the agricultural impact of, or the environmental impact of the agriculture of hops, which is really kind of putting the cart before the horse in some ways if you're worried about the environmental impact of brewing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, but in this particular case, really what the authors of the study had done was they decided to focus in on two of the terpenes that are, that are kind of most commonly associated with American hop characters, and those are uh, linanol and geranol. 
And those are the things that, you know, smell and taste like citrus and oranges and grapefruits, right? So think Cascade. Those are your two primary oils. And what they actually did was figure out a way to sort of uh, genetically modify the yeast to use synthesized sequences from another set of DNA that they then spliced into the yeast so that when the yeast were actually doing the fermentation, they would produce linalool in general. And the idea being, hey, look, now you can have a hoppy beer that doesn't have, you know, that doesn't actually use any hops. And part of the reason why I don't think this will be practical is, one, it's not just those terpenes that we're getting from the hops that make the beer, you know, the experience that it is. You know, there's obviously things like bitterness and, and other compounds that are being carried across. But also, I don't think it's clear to me how you would get the level of impact or control the level of impact that you'd get from the yeast as well. So again, I think this will be one of those things that you can use as an extra tool, but I don't know how practical it will be. Yeah, well, right now, it's kind of like, you know, when you're making a beer, you take the character of the yeast into account, and this would just be a different character of the yeast to take into account. Uh, I don't see it replacing hops because nothing in anything I've read talks about uh, this providing any bitterness. So we're still going to need hops or something for that. To me, one of the things that I find the most interesting and amusing is the reaction of some people. Uh, for instance, uh, Matt Brynaldson, uh, a Firestone Walker, is just like totally opposed to this. Uh, he said, you know, if we allow GMO yeast, well, I could think of a hundred more things that I do or don't want my yeast to do. And so what's the problem with that, Matt? He says that he would rather develop new yeast strains through the traditional means of selecting and isolating them rather than asking a scientist to make one for us. Uh, I guess I just don't see the problem there. Well, one, Matt, just like somebody else on this podcast, is cranky. And two, Matt is also, remember, his background is as a hop chemist. So, of course, I think he's going to feel very strongly about somebody going, we can replace hops. Yeah, well, you know what? He's just a cranky old man. Yeah. Comment left unsaid. <laughs> no, but see, I mean, yeah, it's it's the same point though. What and this I thought was very interesting. It says test batches of the beer, a classic American ale made using the genetically engineered yeast, tasted hoppier than the control beer during a blind tasting performed at Lagunitas. Beers produced using these strains are perceived as hoppier than traditionally hopped beers by a sensory panel in a double blind tasting. So obviously it works, huh? Obviously. Or there, or there's some question about, you know, what people were perceiving, or it could even be that, you know, without all the other material in there from the hops, that yeah, you could get a cleaner expression of those particular hop characters. And so, yeah, therefore they are going to stand out more. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's a bit like uh, the cryo hops in that you're getting more of the flavor and aroma compounds without the tannic polyphenolic uh, vegetal compounds. So. Interesting. I'm curious to see where it goes. Uh, I'm not going to be a Luddite about it. Thank baby Jesus. <laughs> yeah, once. All right. Uh, okay, man. So tell us about the stupid beer day. So everybody will know if you've listened to the podcast for a while that I help host an event that the Falcons do called Brew with a Falcon, where brewers open up their homes and have club members in to go brew with them. And I always like to push the envelope. So this year I had about 12 people come over to my house a few weeks ago. And on one single day, back to back to back, or actually, sorry, in parallel to parallel to parallel, we brewed four different batches of beers. We did 12 gallons of a New England IPA that I'm calling Hazy to the Core on my main rig. Uh, we did seven gallons of a Saison in my you know, grandfather. We did 
three gallons of an Australian Irish red on my little electric brew in a bag uh, plate system. And then we did a one gallon batch in my Pico C of my Citrus Saison kit that you can buy from Pico Brew. And we did all of that, you know, at the same time while making hamburgers and hot dogs and drinking beer. And I have to admit, I think that's some of the most fun I've had in a, in a long while in a brew day, even though the entire day I was kind of running around like my shorts were on fire. <laughs> and if you stood too close to that burner, they might have been. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got the good burners. They'll, they'll put out enough heat. But no, I, I thought this was great fun. And I mean, look, even if you're not going to be uh, you know, crazy enough to try and do four batches of beer, this just does remind me every time I do this event, it's a lot of fun to try and push yourself. And it's also a lot of fun to have people over while you're brewing, at least to me. Yeah, you know what? It, it certainly can be. If I'm going to be seriously brewing, I'd rather do it by myself. But uh, social brewing can be a lot of fun, too. And on those days, I just kind of decide the beer is going to be what it's going to be. Indeed. So, but I'm going to have all those recipes up and I think I may even do a, another tasting session of the, the Boif beers just, just for giggles so that uh, people can see that as well and, you know, see the results of what we did in one brew day. So cool. There we go. All right. I haven't done anything that crazy yet, but believe me, I'm getting tempted. Just think back to your rock and roll days, buddy. Just think back to those. <laughs> yeah. I, I used up so much crazy back then. I don't have a whole lot left these days. <laughs> all right. Well, hey. Let's go lounge. All righty. We're going to get out of here. We're going to head over to the lounge and uh, we'll do part one of the story of my trip to New Zealand. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Why yeast goes rustic for this year's private collection spring release. Europe has long been exalted as the world's heart of brewing tradition. And it couldn't be truer today, as styles like Berliner Weiss and Goza of Germany are being revived through the passion of home and professional craft brewers. Belgian styles have become the flagship beers of breweries all around the globe, and continue to be the holy grail of mastery and sought-after beers. A lot of the flavor of these styles comes from the yeast and bacteria that have shaped the flavors of these regions into centuries of fine beer. Weist is proud to bring our Berliner Weisseblend, Belgian Schelde Ale, and Britannomyces Clausenii to you in this European-inspired selection. These strains are available April through July at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at Weistlab.com. It's just about time, it's just about time, don't you think it's about time, we talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings, beer, 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 beer. It's comfy chair time, you know what that means, we're lounging. And you're lounging with us. And, of course, on this particular lounge, it, it gets into something personal that Denny just got to do. Denny just got to go pretty much halfway around the world. Denny, why don't you tell people where you went and what you did? Yeah, well, I got invited to go to the New Zealand Homebrew Conference. And, as you can imagine, I hesitated for, like, about a nanosecond before I said yes. They had also invited Randy Mosher and Annie Johnson, and we got over there, and Chris White was there for it, too. So it was uh, quite a fun time with a bunch of old friends and made some great new friends. 
Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and get the travelogue section out of the way here real quick. New Zealand is an amazing place. You, you want to go there. Just believe me on that. You want to go there. Fantastic people. Laid back, but not in the comatose sense of the word. Uh, you know, just laid back in the super friendly uh, way. Great food, great beer, gorgeous country. Uh, you know, if I didn't have family here in the U.S., I would seriously consider being over there instead. It was a three-day event based in Nelson, uh, which is kind of like at the northern end of the South Island of New Zealand. Nelson is kind of like the craft beer capital of New Zealand. They have the, the Nelson Craft Beer Trail. It's a town of about 54, 55,000 people, and they have at least as many breweries as we do here in Eugene, which is over twice the size of Nelson. And they're all cranking out some really good beer. So the three days of the event, the first day uh, we were doing tours. There was a tour of a hop farm you could go on, or you could go on what they called the imbiber tour, where you went to four different breweries and uh, got to taste the beers, talk to the brewers, stuff like that. Um, I went on the hop tour, and you're going to hear some audio from that today. My lovely wife, Paula, went on the imbiber tour, and she's going to be with us next time to talk about some of the breweries they went to and what she saw and tasted there. And let me tell you, after spending 20 years with me talking about beer, Paula knows her stuff. So uh, the second day of the festival, the, the event, was what they called March Fest in Nelson. It's a huge food, beer, and music festival. Lots of great bands going on all day. And they have what they call the Brew Zone because they want people to know about not only the great commercial beers that are there, but about making beer yourself. So they paired Annie, Randy, and me up with uh, each with a home brewer from New Zealand, and we uh, brewed one of our recipes on a grain father while we were there and talked to people about how we were doing it and what we were doing. Uh, I made my Nick Danger Porter. I'm not quite sure what Randy and Annie made, but it was a, a long, fun day, and boy, was my throat sore by the end of it because of all the people we talked to. Uh, New Zealand people are great, easy to strike up a conversation with. That evening... They had their homebrew competition for the event, which has got to be the most fun and unusual homebrew competition that I've ever been involved in. And man, I, I want to get this out there because American homebrewers need to start doing this. They call it Brewmania, and it's like a giant best of show round. You don't need any kind of judge qualifications. There are no styles. There are a number of people sitting at our table who had never judged before, including my wife, Paula. Um, they bring four beers out and give you three bottle caps. So of the four beers that are there, you get to vote for three of them to keep, and the fourth one gets thrown out. On every single round at our table, it was completely obvious which beer would be the one to go. In the first round, it was a Douglas fir beer. Yes, wait, wait to, said, to go or to stay? To go. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There, there was just no doubt, you know. And the the consensus at the table was that people really wanted to like this beer, just because of the out there ness of it and stuff like that. 
but it just totally sucked. It, it was really, really a bad idea to make a Douglas fir beer. And try as we might to like this beer, we couldn't do it. Next round, I recall, there was one called Commander in Tweet. And I'll just leave that there. This beer had so much diacetyl that from three feet away, you could smell the butter. And when you took one sip, you instantly wanted to puke. Hmm. So that that was unanimously the beer out. So it, it finally got down to, uh, you know, that we had, had gone through these. And this is done in two ways. You can enter a three beers and get judged as a set, or you can enter one beer and get judged individually. So finally, it got down to the best of show, best of show round. And Annie, Randy, and I judged and actually came to a, a pretty quick conclusion about which beers and brewers were the winners. And I'm happy to say that the, the winner of Brewmania, along with three of the organizers, Carl Summerfield, Ed Bream, and Mike Stringer, are all coming over to the Homebrew Con in Portland. And we're going to have all of them on the podcast that we'll be recording there to talk about uh, New Zealand and the beer scene and uh, and the winning beers from uh, Brewmania. But, you know, I, well, I'll have more info about Brewmania coming up next time around when Paula can talk about her judging experience, too. But let me tell you guys, this is the best beer competition I have ever judged. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's way out there. You don't judge beers to styles. Totally hedonistic, and it was great. Yeah, I'd be, so, I'd be okay. curious. Do you know how many entries were in that competition? You know, I don't right now. I, I would say probably at least 150 or so, mm-hmm. but I'll find, I'll find out from the guys and you know, we'll get that in next time. Yeah, because I'd be curious to see how it would scale as an idea. But yeah, it sounds right. fun. Yeah, it definitely is, man. So the third day is when the actual conference happened uh, with the seminars. They had, uh, you know, a, a little trade show set up and stuff like that. And, uh, we, we all spoke. Uh, it was, uh, again, a, a great event. Everyone uh, had some really good ideas. I got paired with a New Zealand brewer from Choice Brothers in Wellington, a guy by the name of Kerry Gray. People kind of said that he was like my redheaded son. Uh, we had a lot of the same theories on brewing. So we discussed uh, recipe design and how to go about it, how to not go about it. And I think that there was only uh, one particular point where we uh, had different theories about that. Back to day number one, when we went on the hop tour, uh, had a lunch at the Mutir Inn, the oldest pub in New Zealand, uh, first established in 1850, and then went on to uh, check out uh, NZ Hops, which is the largest hop processing facility in New Zealand. Uh, And we then went on to a hop farm, Mac Hops, and talked to Brent McGlashan there. Um, And then finally ended up at the Plant and Food Research Center, which is a fascinating place that we'll hear more about on the next show. But uh, when we got there, hop harvest was just about finished up. They just had a few days left to go, and a huge rainstorm had set in. It was so bad that uh, Randy and Paula and I couldn't land in Nelson the first time. The plane had to turn around and go back to Auckland and try again later. And so consequently, it had kind of set the the hop harvest back. They were waiting for the rain to let up, and then they had three or four more days of harvesting. 
So uh, when this interview starts, Brent McGlashan from Mac Hops is talking about uh, some of the problems with that the weather had caused and about how they're going to be picking up the harvest again in a few days. So let's listen in for a while. With it being like this, we'll start again probably tomorrow. Um, the only thing is it's just really going to tear up our ground. But we've got about four days left in harvest, uh, so we just quite like to get it done, really. And it looks like Wednesday, Thursday next week we're going to get a more deluge. So it's been a, been a tricky growing season this year. We, we had a very, very wet um, spring, so I think record rainfalls. Uh, and it's not much fun when you're trying to plant up a new farm. So... Our new farm's about 10 or 12 minute drive from here and we were aiming to get uh, 60 hectares in production in this year um, but that, uh, the weather sort of curtailed that and we've, we've got a, just, just under 50. Um, and then once, the, once we had all the rain, then uh, November, December, it went bone dry. The taps got turned off and we had some of the hottest temperatures we've had in years here and it just stayed hot and hot and hot. Um, so... That didn't help things either. The, the hot plants like heat, but they don't like a sustained amount. Um, so they, some of them went into early flower, into what we call early burr, um, which wasn't ideal. It meant that they couldn't didn't branch out as wide as what we'd hoped. So as they were growing up, they were doing their bit. Once they got to the top, we hope they sort of bend over the top as they grow, and then it shuts off the sort of the sap flow, and then it puts their arms out, and their arms are where we get the hops coming out on, so the cones. Um, so unfortunately with some varieties, they didn't really get a great deal of time because they put under so much stress, no matter how much irrigation we threw at them. Um, yeah, some varieties didn't overly like that. And then of course, uh, January rolls around and we got, what do we get? Well, since since the start of the year, we've had about 800 mils of rain already. So we're, we're coming close to our yearly rainfall. We've had two cyclones. Um, so we'd like Mother Nature to try throwing something else at us to see what else we can do. But, um, yeah, it's been a tough year. Uh, hop yields this year coming through about average. Um, generally, the, the, uh, if you get a sustained amount of dry, you'll get sort of lighter hops. Um, but if you get a bit of rainfall behind it, you'll get um, a bit of weight put onto them. But this year, with the huge amount of rainfall, they're sort of blown up into quite big hops which have taken quite a bit of drying because when we talk about drying a hop we're not trying to dry the leaf out we're trying to dry all the strig on the inside and that can be like a fatty little slug so what we want to do with that so after seven eight nine hours of drying we want to be able to push into that and there'll be no resistance kind of like I won't say popping a pimple but it is (laughs) yeah so there's nothing there Okay, um, we've got 15 varieties that we grow here on, on the home farm here. So we have 30 hectares of the original farm, and then there's 25 hectares that we have a joint venture with the local um, uh, iwi, local Maori group. So they've got land, we've got the infrastructure, um, so we, we got together on that. The new farm that we're building uh, will be up to about 85 hectares next year, so one of the single biggest hop operations in New Zealand. Um, and there's two, two machines, it's basically a, almost a replica of here, but here we've got 
two old English picking heads. So this this one started in the Commission Dad, 1963. So once hand picking finished or was phasing out, this was the first machine that was put in. The English machines were put in because they could handle the big bulky hops that we were growing here in New Zealand. There's German and American machines on offer at the time, but the Germans didn't quite have the weren't seen to have the um, same ability to pick these big heavy vines, um, and the American stuff probably would have been too expensive, I think. Um, so that's been going for a good few years now. Uh, and then, um, Dad, you brought this one over in, from the Guinness farm over in Australia back in the 80s, yeah. and then we put it in storage, just in case one year we'd need it, and come 20-something years later we did. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's a, sort of a cosmopolitan mix. We've got um, some American gear, some of the grey stuff you'll see as we walk through, um, American-based gear, some more English gear out the back there, and then also some stuff we've built ourselves. Um, over the years, we've sort of, between Dad and I, and I've been tinkering a lot differently, little wee things to put here and there, and now we've gotten to a point where we're we're very happy with how this machine's harvesting. This, this machine with both lines running will now run just as efficient as what a big Dan Howe machine from America will do. Um, so, in, in the good go. So, yeah, pretty, pretty happy with it. So, it may look old, but she works bloody well, really. Um, just from an industry point of view, um, we've, we've seen an increase and this is the first time in my lifetime we've seen the industry actually grow with new people coming into the industry and it's a reflection of the demand for New Zealand hops in the craft um, brewing industry. Uh, we've got a good international demand but we're also watching the overall surplus of hops worldwide starting to grow so as you're probably aware if you read some of the brewing news that the amount of hops that have been planted and continues to be planted in America are probably seriously going to oversupply the hop market in some varieties and, and uh, it'll reach a point where, where it'll, it'll put considerable uh, pressure on, on, on prices, particularly for commodity hops. We hope, uh, from the New Zealand hop industry point of view, that our, our niche status, our, our point of difference, you might say, in the world market will be enough to help us ride that out a little bit. But, we have some really good varieties after years of, of plant breeding which are quite unique uh, because they're obviously they're bred here for our conditions, uh, but they do get good recognition worldwide for, um, from brewers and there's certainly an untapped demand for Nelson Sovin and to a lesser extent the Motawaka variety um, which has got a Sartre's background. Um, but the, we're trying to, a lot of the new releases like Mutari and um, Waimea and, and those, they're all starting, also starting to find acceptance in the market. So the big name varieties like Nelson Sovereign and Motowaka are easy to sell and typically with a distributor they want to have more and more of those but you say to them, well, uh, we can't just grow two varieties of hops and as growers we need to put a harvest together. So you need um, a spread of maturities, um, different varieties have. So we offer a basket of varieties and if they want to take, um, if they want an allocation of Nelson Sovin, typically we will ask them to take some of these other varieties and test their market with it. 
and that's where we're seeing um, repeat, repeat sales. Some of the newer varieties are starting to find their feet in the market, which is encouraging for our future long-term. So some of these hops too, like Nelson Sovin, we had to plant in the ground here 20 years ago. Now it's not a new variety, it's just the fact that um, it's gained prominence in the taste buds now. You know, we, we pulled it out because it's, just, it's not an easy thing to grow. Um, and back in those times, you know, for commodity hops, we were needing stuff that was producing well over two tonne for it to be, be viable to be in the ground. I mean, these things don't get two tonne. Nelson Sotten doesn't get that much. So why would we be growing something like that back then that we could be putting something else in and grow basically bulk crap <laughs> stuff that people actually wanted because no one wanted this so no one would pay the price that we needed to actually process it so you know if you told some people that you were pulling it out 20 years ago they would think really? And you're like well you didn't bloody want it <laughs> so you know it, it's the realities of things um, now people have actually got a taste bud for beer and experimentation you know the, the breeding programs that have been used here in New Zealand have been held up on a pedestal for years, but now we're seeing that come into fruition because, you know, they can come in and go, okay, well, this is the taste we're after, and oh, well, this variety suits it, we can't get this anywhere else in the world. You know, I don't know, you probably, some of you might have seen the sort of the, the, the there's a graph that looks sort of like that, and it's the taste profiles of where beer sits, of where hops sit, and you've got your citrusy aroma ones up here, and then you've got your ones that smell like smelly socks down here and you know it's all spaced around well the, the New Zealand hops are typically up in this quadrant with the, the fruity, the aromatics um, and a good general, it can be used for more than just one beer as opposed to let's go and brew the living tea bag out of this one and just see what we can get you know so we've always been up here but it's only now that people have been wanting those, those um, hops so um, finding after years and years of research that it's kind of coming through. What was your popular one 20 years ago? Pacific Gem, um, New Zealand Halatau, which is now called Waka 2, which was the aroma type one. So we, back probably 10 years ago, we would have been growing maybe six varieties on the farm. It would have been Pacific Gem, Green Bullet, Sticklebrack, um, Waka 2, Super Alpha, yeah. So... Um, and we're still growing a few of them, you know, to, uh, not many, but now all the newer ones coming through, well not newer, but all, all the more frillier varieties um, are gaining acceptance. So. And we grow the likes of Rewalker, which everyone always wants to know about. Um, we've got the single biggest planting here, I think it's about four hectares. Um, and just to give you an idea of the challenges we face with Rewalker, uh, this year we, we, we replanted uh, 2,000 plants out of 10,000. So it's not an easy variety to grow, um, and that's why it needs to be up there in the marketplace price-wise. Otherwise, there's no point us growing it when we can be putting in Nelson Sovin or something else there. So as farmers, we're still a business. We still have to see what fits best into that window, and should we be growing something else. But isn't Nelson Sovin really hard to harvest? I mean, yes, it's... yep. Picks very bunchy, yeah. um, slows the machine down. Um, the only good thing about Nelson Sovin is the price ticket for us. Um, yeah, the flavours. But look, we do it because brewers want it. You know, we, grow it it's, we could be growing other things, the likes of Raquel fits in the same picking window. Um, 
Waiti, which is a new variety that, that's starting to fit that picking window. There's about three or four that could actually be putting in there. So that took over the Pacific Gem picking window. And Pacific Gem used to be our big bulk producer. And year in, year out, we could get 2,703 tonne to the hectare. And you go and put Nelson Sovereign in, and you're getting you know, 16, 1,700 kilograms, and you're counting the hops coming off the elevator. <laughs> and you're going, this bug sucks. <laughs> so considering, I mean, taste is almost a fashion thing to some degree. Yep, yep. How, how far ahead are you guys looking and trying to guesstimate what... Okay, this falls out of fashion, and what's what's the next fashion? Yeah, so for us, you know, it's a good question. We have to predict of what the market's going to kind of do, sort of thing. So um, we have to, so from from propagation-wise, we have to know what market it's going to go into. So let's say we may want to find a mid-season variety. Okay, right, what's in the list that we can look at? Okay, we'll rewalk it. Right, so we propagate that up first year. Then we take it into crown stage. Then the second year, that, then it will therefore be called its first year baby plants. But it's already been two years in the process. Then we can get a crop off it. For the likes of rewalk, it takes three or four years to actually get a viable, decent crop off it. Most other ones, if we get a really good year, we can get nearly a full crop in the first year. But that's got to be you've got to have everything going right. Well, we haven't had a season like that for three or four now. Um, but second, third, fourth year is normally the, the heyday for, for the varieties. So we kind of predict two years out um, what from we want. A, the, from a research point of view, um, yeah, just there's a range of flavours and, and, and um, crosses that come off the program. And I suppose when we're selecting hops, uh, we're, we're looking at beer styles, so we'd like to have some finer aromas which might have some European parentage and we've got one coming out off with a Hurstbrooker mother um, and then there's also the IPA which is the most popular craft beer and, and, and that generally wants more punchy sort of um, flavouring hop so we've got one of those releases coming through the program uh, probably this year we've got some commercial quantities available. So. Typically from research to commercial, it took 10 years to get a variety from nothing out to the marketplace. We're trying to fast track that to about six or seven um, by having it being bred, going into single plot trial, 10 plot trial, 10 plot trial to 80 or 100 plants, then deciding, right, we can then go into the brew plant, we've got our um, plant food now, and try all different brew styles with it and go, okay, well this beer works really well with that. Um, doesn't work for that kind of style and then we know what market we kind of fit into then we look at the yield the agronomics um, is it viable to be growing it do you reckon people are going to have it and then we yeah so that that's, just takes that time to get into the system and then it's up to the growers almost to have a bit of a gamble go okay we'll, we'll, we'll put a hectare in not knowing if there's a market there um, knowing that they can sell other stuff but trying something else as well so we're trying to narrow that window down because everyone likes new, everyone likes different. They want to have written on their can that you know this is a new new variety, and it's especially prevalent in the states where you know you've had even old varieties that have been renamed, so people have got a new name for in the can. <laughs> I mean, everyone knows it's happening. Um, and but you, you get all of a sudden you never get this massive big library list of varieties, and people are going, but where's my original stuff? You know, they, they still want to have backbone hops that they go to. 
and they may be 20 years old, some of those varieties, but still, still very much in vogue. So, yeah. And just to give, like Dad said, Cascade, to give you an idea, back in the 80s, was it, Dad? There was a bit of a collection bank taken um, from, from around the world from different hops, so we can then, could then have them in New Zealand, so we could breed different parentages from different countries and try and adapt them to the New Zealand environment. The Cascade variety was bought out from the States. It had been in a, over here for 20 to 25 years before we actually decided, well, let's just try and do a, a release of that variety and, and out into the mainstream. So we've done that, and it's actually been found that it's a, transformed into a completely different hop, completely different from the mother it's come from. It's actually adapted to this environment. We now get far more alpha, far more beta, far more oils. It's, that's what's been renamed Taiheke is, is a different variety because it's not Cascade or New Zealand Cascade. Um, it's chalk and cheese. So you can just see environment changes, which also soils can change the actual shape and stuff of the hop itself. So we have sandy soils down here. The river's only less than a kilometre from here. The sea, two kilometres from here. Um, very free draining. Uh, the water disappears. You know, we can have this three inches of rain. 70 odd mils of rain and it can disappear in a day or two. Our new farm is all clay, very very heavy clay um, and that will produce, uh, instead of a sort of a bigger kind of partly fluffier cone here, we'll produce a smaller but more denser cone up there. Same variety, exactly the same. Um, so that will produce a heavier cone, this will produce more but lighter. Um, so ultimately for our farm in the next five to ten years we're going to try and We've had experience with clay because we leased another farm for seven years, um, just beyond where we were, and we know which varieties grow well there, we know which varieties grow well here. Ultimately, we'd like to have those varieties in sync which grow best on both farms. So, yeah. I have a question for you. Yeah. When I've talked to hop growers around Yakima, they unanimously say that they wish they didn't have to grow centennial hops. They say it's, it's a bitch to grow, it's yeah. low yield, but the market pretty much demands that they grow them. Yep. Do you guys have a variety like that? Rewalker. <laughs> yeah. I thought that from the yeah. way you were talking yeah. about yeah. it. So, yeah, um, yeah I've, I've spent three harvests over in the States got some, in, in Yakima. I've got some really good family friends over there. Cool. So I spend a fair bit of time in their environment. We would love their envi growing environment because they're basically growing in a big glass house. Mm -hmm. You get seven inches of rain a year. Day in, day out, you wake up and you've got... 35 degrees worth of heat, and if, it, if you get if you get a few raindrops in your windscreen, it's pissing down over there. So, <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. a really different concept. But you know, our rewalk is exactly the same as that. There's varieties there that we grow for brewers because they want them. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily grow them for us um, because we we like to try and satisfy everyone. We can't. Unfortunately, New Zealand hops has annoyed quite a few people in the past because people have wanted Everyone wants our varieties. Now, there's only so many people you can say yes to. <laughs> and um, then if those people don't get it, you know, it's a bit of a shame, but um, we're trying. Um, but say for Rewalker, so four years ago we knew that the yields are crap for the first few years. We thought, well, look, four or five years' time, we don't know what the market's going to be like. Let's put some in. Let's try and get them growing. In four or five years' time, we're finally up to a decent yield that's going to be worthwhile. We're always going to sell Rewalker, you know, right. so it's going to be our backstop. Um, we've got a 
uh, propagation house out here. There's only two propagators of um, the hop crowns or the hop plants uh, and the, for, to, to, to produce the plants here in New Zealand. Um, I've marked the last six years, I've, I've marked from a plot of 3,000 rewalker plants, I've taken 15 of the best mother plants. That 15 over the last two years has been reduced down to nine because they are the best propagators. Mm -hmm. Then I've reduced it down to six. So out of those six, what I call the ultimate rewalker plant, we've now got six rows out here that are exceptional. And so now I'll breed from those six and then hopefully we'll get a more consistent line. Um, because, yeah, it's... it's uh, less of a pain in the butt to... Yeah, grow, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a lovely-looking variety. Yeah. Again, it's very hard to pick. Um, it's very bunchy. Um, hop machines don't really like the big clusters of, of hops. Um, so, yeah, it, it takes a while to, you know, get them out of that bunch. Um, but, you know, everyone wants it, so we'll, we'll keep trying. <laughs> You've got to do what the market says. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you've got to understand that too. You know, mm -hmm. as growers, we understand that. We know that. We know now, growing 15 varieties, that we're not going to have a year that we're going to say that everything did awesome, because now each different variety likes something different out of the environment. They like some of them will, will prefer the early on sunshine. Some will prefer sunshine later on in their growing season. So um, it's it's. We just hope to hit our averages and above each year if we can. So. Well, they're like humans, aren't they? You know, I guess we all came from one source to start off with, and we all change. Um, same in a plant. You, hot plants, I like to explain it as being a human. You, we're all different, um, no matter if we come from the same thing. Um, all individuals. Yeah. Everyone else is meant to say that at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you will find slight, slight differences. And see, back when there was, you know, seeds and stuff were around, you would get that difference in the pollination yeah. and things like that. Now we do direct cuttings. The problem with rewalker is we find that it's, it snaps, basically. The roots snap. So it's very prone to getting infections in there. Um, <laughs> Medicine, Molly. <laughs> um, so yeah, and, and getting those several ones that I've managed to get now, they don't have necessarily as hard of properties as that. You know, they, they're getting better. So yeah, and in terms of when we do our propagation, which is in springtime, we, we take the cuttings from the shoots. Um, you know, we're not rhizome cuttings; we're taking shoot cuttings. Um, rhizome cuttings can lead to a bit more variation as well. Um, and plus, over in the States, we know there's been problems in the past with uh, mixed varieties in the fields. Now, if you go to a mixed field and you take rhizome cuttings, all of a sudden that explodes. And more mixes become more mixes. And all of a sudden, that's why CTZ is CTZ. Mm -hmm. Columbus Tom, because they don't know which the hell they got. <laughs> you know, there's one of them in there somewhere. So we're very specific on that. And, you know, out in this rewalker crop, I know there's six uh, rogue plants in four hectares, over 10,000 things. Eventually I'll go and dig them out once we get a chance. Um, all our other varieties out here, this Nelson Sovereign field out here is four and a half hectares. There's not one that is not a Nelson Sovereign. Um, we, we, if you buy a product off the shelf, if you buy a Nike, you don't want the sign to be written around the wrong way. You know, you want to be buying the right product. So you can look at your hops yep. just and know which variety they are just by recognising just from recognition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Majority of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So 
And um, the new ones that you're growing, that, yes. um, that you were mentioning before, at what stage will they have a name registered that everyone will know about? So at the moment, they, some of them are they, getting to that stage where they are just a number. Mm. Um, and that number that will then be thought of a name. You probably realise that most of the names have been named after place names around this area. We're probably going to go away from that because you can't trademark a place name, um, which, which is a tough thing. Um, it is neat to have it as a place name um, because then people have got an identity. You know, Motawaka, Rewalker, Mootree was going to be called Brooklyn until. Yeah, I was going to say Brooklyn would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah until, until Brooklyn Brewing got onto us and said, "Hey, hey, we'll shake a big stick at you because we're Americans and we can." Um, <laughs> so we walked away from that, and uh, it's now called Mootree. Um, so, so if, but at what point? Like just before they were released onto the market? Yes. Or, yeah, or, yeah, just before they were released. Yeah, well, yeah. So those letters, those the same, well, the, the numbers become a, a name. So. Highly stressful to think of a good name. And, it, and it's, that's coming up soon? Yeah, next yep, year? Yep. so we've got two that we are quite excited about, um, <coughs> and the market will slightly be seeded um, this year. We've got some uh, available, about uh, probably about a tonne, I think. We'll end up going to selected brewers who will give us feedback how the hop's gone, can it be used commercially. We know it can be used for certain um, small trials, can it go to a bigger trial? bang, hit the market and we're gone. But the most important thing for us is propagation material. So I've gone from say 70 plants to 4,000 plants, then 4,000 plants can get, then go to 40 or 50,000 plants. But you don't want to tell the market if mm. you haven't got yeah. that behind you. Oh don't worry guys, we'll give it to you five years yeah, time. Yeah, this new <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll wait that long, sure we will. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's, you've just got to, we've done that wrong in the past. We've, we've released something not had the ability to propagate it up, and people just go, well, what's the point? You haven't got it here for us to try. So, um, yeah, so hopefully we're trying to get our ducks in line, so when people want it, we'll say, yes, guys, we can give, you know, we can get it to you now. So trying to walk before we run. Other, sort of other hop growers will have it as well? Uh, we've, got a, we've got a small plot trial out here because we're trying to ease the pressure off um, plant food out there um, because they've got... At Plant Food, they've got a small hop garden there. They've got probably about two, three thousand, three thousand crosses, three thousand crosses a year. And and to get from one plant, if they were to put, go back into their ten or sixty plot trials, then there's sixty plots that could actually be in a different variety that could be the next big thing. You know, so if you bring it onto a grower's operation, uh, then the trials are still getting done. We still bag them off, so we spend half an hour two days ago doing one of the trials, um, going through a commercial machine, backing off, then they go and dry it out there. We get the, um, all the spectros, everything done on it. Um, and then basically we grow for them just so we can show what it's going to do. Um, and then it relieves the pressure out there. And they've only got a small machine anywhere. anyway. For them to harvest 60, 70, 80 vines, that would take them probably two hours. For us it takes us five minutes. You know, so. So it's a matter of aligning the industry, going straight from the straight from the ground, working our way through from what we do to the brewer. Brewer goes, yep, let's do it. Bang, straight from the front. Hey, Brian, so. if you get different characteristics from different farms for the same variety, do you have to be a bit of a winemaker and like on a drying room floor, do you have to mix them together in order to get it to come out the way you want consistently? Or do you just tell the 
reseller, hey, this came from this farm, this came from that farm, you can pick which one you want? Um, it's, that's a very good question. So, um, the actual, when I was saying that the, the, the varieties are the same, but the cone structure is different, they actually still give off exactly the same properties. Um, yeah, they do. It's quite surprising. You think, oh, it's, it would be different, but it's not. Um, but that's very related to harvest window. So, what we're finding more and more, particularly, and even the guys from, from Yakima and stuff, will be talking about this quite a lot. Um, when you're going to the likes of your Citras or your Simcoes or your Nelson Sovereign or your Model Acres, people wanting you to grow as much as that as you can. So all of a sudden, harvest spread goes from six days to seven days to eight days to nine days, and you're going from a very green hop to a buggered hop. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we're trying to find this bell curve in the middle. So on this farm, our longest harvest window is six days, and we will not exceed six days because we don't want to exceed six days. Um, because we know that if a brewer was to sniff it on day one and sniff another crop on day six, it will be different. You'd be a, I'd be standing here telling you lies if I knew that it was going to be the same. It's not going to be. That it changes over, over time. So we do rigorous testing. I'm testing every single day, doing dry matter tests. Um, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to map when it gets to that part of the curve just before it, it hits partial expiry. Um, it's better for the plant. We know that we can get it, pack as much aroma or as much alpha into that as possible um, and then we're surprised that we're supplying the best package we can. But when we hear of people growing one variety for 10 days or harvesting for 12 days, we know there's something going wrong um, and we know that a brewer's going to turn up and he's going to smell garlicky onion and that or something and then He's going to smell, oh, well, okay, well, that's the one I want to hit, that's the note I want to smell. Um, so, yeah, it, it's because the industry is so small, we can actually sort of tap a few guys on the shoulder and say, hey, you know, you'd probably better look at putting a different variety in. Um, yeah, but even still, the paddocks, the fields are different each year. So, let's say, for instance, this, this field was ready, say, on the 16th of March this year, last year it was on the 18th. That other field, and vice versa, chops around. That's why the testing shows that, okay, that one's ready to go. Let's go and do that. What's still out there? Still out there. We've got Pacific Jade um, that we'll go back on to. Um, Pacific Jade is quite a good backbone beer to a lot of to a lot of brewers are using it in New Zealand um, for that. And then we'll go on to Green Bullet, and then, then we're all done. Yes. So. Do you grow organically? No, we don't grow organically. We try we do our best to stay with organic practices. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only sprays we're putting on are weed sprays. Um, and then we're doing as minimal amount as we can because we use sheep. Mm-hmm. Uh, as annoying as they are, we still <laughs> use them. The only good sheep is one in the freezer. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, yeah, they, are, they do all, basically all of our weeding from about middle of December onwards. So once the vines are up high enough, up the string, we can let the sheep go in there, and they do all the weed control. Um, they eat the vines up until about that high, which is really good mm-hmm. when it comes into the machine. We can then see which vine's ready to go. Um, there's no bushy bottoms or anything like that, um, so that's quite handy. But we don't spray anything onto the vines, um, except if we have a mite problem. Uh, this year, mites were prevalent everywhere. 
two days before we were going to get our predators, which we release um, predator mites out to gobble up all the bad ones. Uh, the company alerted New Zealand Hops and said, sorry, we cannot deliver this year on your mite order. Awesome. Thanks, guys. <laughs> two days out. That's just brilliant. You could have told us earlier. Um, so, unfortunately, we had to have quite a, we had a spray program. We only sprayed it once. Um, we hit the, the, the most optimum time that we knew that we were going to kill the most mites. Here, we're very susceptible to mites. We've had apples growing all around us for years and years in different crops that have used insecticides. We try to avoid it like the plague, but we've had to use them. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't have a crop to show for it. So we've put one spray on this year, um, and but generally we'd use the predator mites to go out in the field. Now those predator mites are costing us around $500 a hectare mm -hmm. to put on. A spray costs us about 130 So we could choose to take the spray road every single year and save a lot of money, but we don't. We would rather use the predator mites to, to go out and, and do the business. What about downy mildew? Do you have problems with That's that? That's a swear word. We don't like to use that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, I apologise. No, no mildews, <laughs> no, um, no harsh diseases, anything like that um, at this moment in time. Great. So we hope that it stays that way. There's, we don't, we're not importing any more rootstock. We haven't done so for years since disease mm -hmm. has been found. Um, you'd be shooting yourself in the foot if you did that. Great. Um, so, and if, if a mildew got hold in these hops, it would be an incredible environment for them. You know, you've got clammy, moist <laughs> That's what air, um, yeah, you know, and we overhead irrigate and everything, so all the things that downy mildew would just go, yeah, this is my hotel. You do overhead irrigation. <laughs> we overhead irrigate, yeah. Okay. yeah. reason why we overhead irrigate, you can see down the rows, we have cover crops. Oh, the yeah. soil here is so sandy, we've got to bind it together. So we cover crop um, and we'll do what we call alternate cropping. So one year we'll have that cultivated for the growing season, then we'll put it, seed it, and then it'll be grown. As you can see now, it's all grown up. Cool. Okay, so we, we basically, if you've got your plant row, if you plant a row, this side here will be renewed one year, then it'll be in the grass for the following, and that side gets renewed. So you're basically cutting half the side of the plant each time. So it's renewing That's really cycle. Great. So we take a hit on yield, um, but we get more consistency. Mm -hmm. So we could go and cultivate the living crap out of our soil um, and get fairly good yields, but it's going to go like this. And we don't want that. We would rather be able to say, right, New Zealand hops, this is our guaranteed production. We think we're going to hit 2,200 kilograms for the next five years. This year we'll get 2,300. This year we'll get 2,100. We're not going to get 2,500, 1,800. You know, things like mm -hmm. that. So we're trying to go for consistency, not the big spikes and troughs. Um, so looking after your soil, the soil is your bank. <laughs> if you're not looking after your bank, well, I don't know. Okay, so that's a little bit of the story <laughs> of hops in New Zealand. And there's some really, really fascinating info in there. I realize that the recording might be a little bit hard to hear at times. But one of the big takeaways, other than the fact that they have this really cool old hop-picking machine they bought from Guinness, is that uh, terroir plays a huge, huge role in the hops. Uh, one, one of the stories is about how, you know, American Cascades went over there, and they were so different when they grew in New Zealand that they actually had to give them a different name so that people wouldn't expect them to be anything like American Cascades. If only the Argentinians had done that as well. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't have all been suckered into that. 
So anyway, I hope you all enjoyed that uh, that little recording. And next time, we're going to hear from uh, Ron Beetson of the Plant and Food Research Center talking about their hop breeding and development program there in New Zealand and some of the stuff they've come up with. So hope you enjoyed it. On to the questions. On to the questions. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we have a few questions that we're going to try and give decent answers to. So please stick around. Why Yeast Goes Rustic for this year's private collection spring release. Europe has long been exalted as the world's heart of brewing tradition, and it couldn't be truer today as styles like Berliner Weiss and Goza of Germany are being revived through the passion of home and professional craft brewers. Belgian styles have become the flagship beers of breweries all around the globe and continue to be the holy grail of mastery and sought-after beers. A lot of the flavor of these styles comes from the yeast and bacteria that have shaped the flavors of these regions into centuries of fine beer. Yeast is proud to bring our Berliner Weisse blend, Belgian Schelde Ale, and Britannomyces Clausenii to you in this European-inspired selection. These strains are available April through July at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. So it's that time we're going to try and answer some questions, and hopefully we get more right than we get wrong. But our first question actually comes from a good listener, Chino, over there on Reddit. And he actually writes this question in for Denny, and he says, uh, Denny sometimes says on the podcast that Star Santa is not effective against wild yeast or Vardia sataticus. Could you ask Denny to elaborate on this? Maybe Murray Landsman can talk about this on your podcast if he's comfortable discussing a competitor's podcast. Is Denny's position based solely on Mark Van Ditta's statements on the HA forum? I'm battling the same thing. For example, I have some bottle of a 1040-ish beer that have increased in carbonation uh, as of last week. These were stability test bottles. It's a second runnings beer from an RRS that went into and is coming out of a barrel this weekend. So it's been a while, but I don't remember the brew date. I think six and a half months. Beer was fully attenuated per FFT, that's fast ferment test for everybody else, and checked with a finishing hydrometer, then recently calibrated on two-point basis. Very anal retentive protocol on sanitation. Use fresh prepared star sand solution at recommended dosing mixed with distilled water. Minimum of two minute contact time. Relatively new bottling DIY bucket that I baby and is likely unscratched, etc. I was out of iodophore. The upshot is that bottles and bottling equipment sanitized with iodophore are free of this issue. But when I use star sand, about half of my stability hold bottles are showing signs of gusher bugs at six months and sometimes earlier. 
I know the solution I order for, but I am curious about the science. Denny. Okay, I was too, and no, this is not based uh, solely on what Mark had to say. Um, I went to our good buddy Jonathan Etley at Craftmeister, the makers of BTF Iota 4, and asked him if he could explain the difference to me. So rather than try and interpret it, I'm just going to read the response that he sent me, and hopefully it's going to make some sense to you. So Jonathan says... The term broad spectrum, when applied to a sanitizer, means that it will attack a wide variety of different types of microorganisms, including gram-positive bacteria, such as Listeria and Staphylococcus, gram-negative bacteria, like E. coli and Salmonella, viruses, fungi, both yeasts and molds, as well as many parasites. Broad-spectrum germicides act on microbial membranes, okay? cellular enzymes, DNA, and protein. Iodine-based sanitizers have been used as antimicrobial agents since the 1800s and have a broad spectrum of activity. They're a powerful sanitizer in a strong, acidic, aqueous solution. They are generally used at 12.5 to 25 parts per million available iodine and can cause staining on some surfaces, especially plastics. Acid anionic sanitizers are surface-active sanitizers, but negatively charged. Formulations include inorganic and organic acids, plus a surfactant. Carboxylic acids, fatty acids, are sometimes incorporated as well. They are unaffected by hard water or organic soils. The dual function of acid is that it can be used for rinsing and sanitizing in one step. These sanitizers must be used at low pH. Activity above pH 3.5 to 4.0 is minimal. Acidity, detergency, stability, and non-corrosiveness make them highly effective. Acid anionic sanitizers are broad-spectrum against bacteria and viruses, but not very effective against yeasts and molds. Iodophores are considered broad-spectrum antimicrobial versus Starsan being antibacterial. Okay, right there, that's one of the differences. The actual label for Starsan lists what it is registered to kill, E. coli and Staph A, the minimum baseline for allowing a claim of being a sanitizer with the EPA. Iodophore has proven effectiveness against not only gram-positive and negative bacteria, but yeast, mold, fungi, and viruses, and is also a sporicidal agent. So hopefully that made some sense to you. Uh, basically, it's you know, saying that both are good, but they're different. I tend to use both kinds of sanitizers, go back and forth. Star San is certainly easy to keep in a spray bottle and has real minimal contact time. But I also use Iodophore uh, just kind of as a safety measure and backup. Yeah, I agree. And I often will kind of flop back and forth between the two. But I, I will admit, I use SaniClean, you know, most days as my brewery sanitizer. Just when I start to get suspicious or I've used something maybe a little funkier, I'll drop in iodophore there as well just to be able to, you know, really kill things. But speaking of star sand, uh, that's going to factor in a little bit. So we'll get there. Yeah, right. You know, especially if I've been using something like bread or something like that, I always make sure to sanitize my equipment with iodophore afterwards just to make sure. All right. Next question. All right. This one is for you, buddy. It says, hey, Drew. 
Huge fan of Denny and your books and avid listener of the podcast. I have a lot of drive time in northern Minnesota for my job, and the Experimental Brewing Brew Files podcast are about the only thing that keep me from going completely insane. Wow, usually it's the other way around. It makes people go insane. I wanted to reach out because in multiple episodes, Denny and yourself have mentioned your typical fermentation schedule for certain beers. For example, pitch at 64, let's sit for three days at that, then raise to X degrees for so many days. I recently built a fermentation keyser to better dial in my fermentation process and was wondering if you work off of a chart for those schedules or if that's just something that you've perfected over time. Thanks for all that you do for the homebrew community and keep up the good work. Thank you from Adrian. Adrian, I do have a chart. I work off the chart that's in my heart. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, these schedules were things that I've taken advice from other people who know yeast a lot better than I do. Uh, and, you know, I've learned from them and then slowly tweaked it over time to find things that work better for my taste. And so, yeah, it, like in particular, that Saison yeast schedule, which is the one I probably quote the most. It's based in part on lessons that I learned from uh, Dr. M.B. Rains, who, and then I've modified it over time to work in terms of how I see the yeast needing help and what expresses the best characters out of those. So yeah, it starts with some uh, practical uh, practical places, some uh, practical sources, but then the rest of it is really sort of that brewer's intuition that's been developed over time and multiple trials. And I'm sure that's the same for you too, Denny, right? Yeah, it's very, very much the same. Uh, one of the first things I learned when I started homebrewing was don't trust the temperature ranges that the yeast manufacturers tell you. I mean, give them a try. That's that's how you learn. But I have found that I generally prefer lower temperatures, at least to start with, than any of the recommended temperatures. And that's just what works best for me. And like Drew says, it's a learning process. You make a decision, you go with it, you f analyze the results, and you tweak it the next time around. It's just that easy. Yep. Just takes time and potentially making some bad batches of beer. Right. Or actually, wait, sorry, no, potentially making some less than perfect batches of beer. Because all beer is beer, and beer is good. Not all beer is good. <laughs> all right. Unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I've made beer that proves that. All right, and our next question comes from uh, Tom Bergstorm via email, who says, two questions regarding oxidation for those who do not keg. Yeah, you can't tell that's all in caps. Uh, one, what best practices do you suggest to minimize oxidation when dry hopping? And two, do you have any advice for minimizing oxidation when bottling from a bottling bucket? Mr. Kahn. Uh, best practices to minimize oxidation from dry hopping. Uh, hold your breath. Uh, now, I, I mean, there's all kinds of, of theories out there for that, um, you know, try and dry hop when there's still a little fermentation left to do stuff. You can definitely give that a try. That produces other results that I particularly don't care for, but it, it's up to your tastes. Uh, my theory has always been do the best you can and don't worry about it. Uh, any advice for minimizing oxidation when bottling from a bottling bucket? Obviously don't splash. Don't uh, have air in your hoses. Um, you know, just, just the really obvious stuff. When you stir in your priming sugar, do it very gently and do the best you can and call it good. That's, <laughs> you know, that's my advice. Well, and I'll add to that. I mean, obviously, even though you're not kegging, 
you can still actually have some CO2 on hand, you know, even if it's just as simple as some of those like bright cartridges, that type of thing. Uh, if you really want to be obsessive about it, you can flood the headspace of your carboy after it's done fermenting with CO2. That will do some minimization, but then again, you're still going to have to worry about the O2 that's being carried and trained in the hops. And then the other part is on bottling. Again, you could flood the CO, you could flood the bucket with CO2 and then cover it and do that. You really just have to worry about, you know, what's your, your interface like, right? You know, that's, that's where you get your oxidation is that interaction on the top surface area. So do everything that you can to minimize that. And yeah, otherwise it's be gentle. Yeah, that's, that's about all you can really do and just hope for the best and, uh, you know, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. This last question comes in from Tom Barton via email, and it's for Drew. Tom says, Hi, Drew. I've got a batch of your Amarillo Cezanne currently fermenting. It started around 1054, didn't add the table sugar, and four days in, the gravity is under 1010. I've never made a Cezanne or used 3711 before. How long do you like to let this sit in primary before kegging? I usually turn beers around in 7 to 10 days, but have read that Cezannes can benefit from extra time. If I cold crash this sucker on day 7, then keg, will I be doing it injustice? No. So here's the reason why I say that. is that You're using 3711, which is the French Cezanne. That is a, that is a monster of a strain. It will... It will ferment out like nobody's business. If your gravities are stable at seven days, go for it. It doesn't need much cleanup. The The finicky ones are the 3724 and the other DuPont-esque strains. Those are the ones that need a little bit of extra help. Uh, those are the ones that benefit from, say, the extra heat and the open fermentation. So with this one, if the beer is done and it tastes clean, or is at least clean as a Saison can, you're done. Put it in the keg. Get ready to enjoy it. Yep. And as John Palmer has wisely pointed out to me, and I, I, John, I hope you're listening because I said wise, um, beer cleanup doesn't happen post-fermentation. It happens during fermentation. The whole idea that you have to let the beer sit there for a couple of weeks to clean itself up afterwards just doesn't happen. It needs food to do that. And if there's no food left, there's no cleanup going on. So it's like Drew said, when it gets there, then bottle it. Keg it, whatever you want to do. All right. So I think it's time for us to you know close this thing up. Let's get that quick tip out there. And the quick tip is actually going back to the sanitizer thing. Don't leave a sanitizer like Star San or Sandy Clean or really just about anything sitting in a keg for too long. Remember, those things are pH dependent. And after the pH rises, which they'll do if you uh, if you leave them exposed to oxygen for too long or you know in a non-distilled water, well, they become more bacterial friendly. And I had to clean out a keg the other day that I'd forgotten had sanitizer in it. And well, I had to scrub that damn thing with Brewer's friend. <laughs> I had to scrub that thing with uh, Barkeeper's friend in order to get rid of some very interesting oh, gross. So don't let it sit, even though it's called a sanitizer. Yeah, that's right. It, it will eventually become unsanitary. Yep. All right. And then finally, uh, let's uh, do something other than beer. The one thing I found recently was a brand new series, or not brand new to me, on YouTube called Hot Ones, which is an interview show where they take celebrities and other people through, you know, about a 20 minute long conversation, an interview that happens while they're eating increasingly stupidly hot chicken wings. And it's really interesting to see what happens. And this season, they actually opened up their season with Taraji P. Henson, and they just had one with Charlie Theron. And it's just really interesting to see what happens when you give celebrities super hot wings while asking them lots of questions. Oh, man, I'm going to have to check that one out. That sounds really great. There you go. 
Let's get out of here. All right. Okay, everybody. Thank you for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit, as well as the homebrew channel on Slack. You can usually find me hanging out on the AHA discussion forum, uh, Facebook beer groups, and, and just about every beer forum going out there, because I have no life. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics or recipes or experiments or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL. So until next time, Remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.